Thank you for joining us at Mind Matters News. Uh, this is Mike Egner. Uh, I have the great privilege uh, of uh, talking with uh, Bill Dembski. Bill is a senior fellow at the Discovery Institute Center for Science and Culture and a distinguished fellow, fellow with Walter Bradley Center for Natural and Artificial Intelligence. Uh, Bill um, has written a great chapter in uh, a new book called Minding the Brain, Models of Mind, Information, and Empirical Science. Uh, and uh, Bill's chapter is on uh, information, uh, and uh, the title is How Informational Realism Dissolves the Mind-Body Problem. Um, I just wanted to ask uh, Bill a couple of questions. This is the second in a series of, of, of these podcasts that we're doing. I, I guess we can start with how does um, informational realism help us understand the relationship between the mind and the body? Right. Uh, so, I mean, my point really, you know, the, and the, the article that I wrote for that book in which you also have a, an essay uh, is dissolving the mind-body problem, how, it, how informational realism dissolves the mind-body problem. And I think what my point is that if you no longer give primacy to matter, I mean, because if you have ma matter and especially a mechanistic view of matter, that naturally leads to, well, you have to think of the mind, consciousness, and everything as being some sort of byproduct of matter in motion or matter in its various modifications. Uh, but if matter is no longer fundamental, if it is information that's, that's fundamental and that things disclose themselves to other things uh, informationally and that things themselves are only understood by the information they exchange, uh, then it seems that you don't have uh, a mechanistic reduction. Uh, information uh, is not constrained by uh, you know, by the speed of light, it's uh, you know what, what you you see that information is exchanged by correlation. So we, we see that, for instance, in quantum mechanics, when we have these what looks like action at a distance, where you measure one electron in one place when it was paired with another, and then instantly there are these uh, correlations. Uh, so we know that there's an informational exchange, or there's some sort of common informationality going on there, uh, but. Uh, you know, it's 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 entirely in the correlation that we understand the information that's there. Uh, so once information becomes real and not shackled to a mechanistic materialistic view, uh, it, it seems that you you don't have to think of neuroscience as being something reductively materialistic, or that the that the brain has to be a la Ray Kurzweil a um, you know computational system. You know, so one thing I do say I mean, is informational realism, it's uh, ontologically, metaphysically minimalist. So it could be that matter is in the end all that there is in the sense that all information expresses itself through matter and that uh, the mind may just be uh, this materialistic substratum. Uh, but uh, it's not required. In fact, I mean, I, th I think that would be utter nonsense. But uh, the from a materialist vantage, though, what else could the mind be? I mean, there's there, there are no other options. And so that's why I, I really I close that essay by saying, you know, if you're a materialist, there's only one answer you can give, you know, but if you're an informational realist, you can let reality be what it is. Sure. And if it discloses itself in mechanistic materialist terms, okay, fine, let's examine that. But 
that doesn't have to be the only answer we get. You know, it's whatever the information tells us. In a sense, informational realism says at a very fundamental level, follow the evidence, follow the information where it leads and don't constrain it because materialism would say that that sort of information is not possible. You know, I mean, this is, I think, to your point, I think you, you touch on near-death experiences in, uh, in your essay for the, the volume. And, you know, when you have people who are undergoing NDEs who suddenly have access to some information about what's going on in another operating theater or, or whatnot, I mean, they're getting information, but there's no way to account for that in terms of any sort of chain of physical causation. So, but why should that be a problem? You know, I mean, it's uh, the world could be a stranger place than we suspect, but not if you're a materialist. If you're a materialist, you know, that's verboten. You know, you, you can't can't allow that. That's not the way the world works. We know that. Well, how do you know it? Well, because we're materialists and we know that materialism is right. Well, what about all those miracles? Well, they can't happen. <laughs> so you, you see the what right, you know the, right. the constraint on a that a worldview. Uh, brings, you know, how it how it really shackles the mind. I was watching an interview with Christopher Koch uh, a couple days ago. He's a neuroscientist who um, uh, has written extensively on the mind-body problem, and he 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 mentioned to to his credit that 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 he's really rethinking the issue of free will because there simply isn't any materialist way of accounting for free will. However, free will does seem to be real in a, in a very meaningful sense. And um, it, it, it's one example of many that I've seen where I, I just want to beat my head on the desk and say, if you would just let go of materialism, all the, uh, so many of these problems, these mind-body problems would just vanish. Right. That, that, that you know, we've locked ourselves into this materialist prison, this conceptual prison, and um, we've created our own problems. Um, and uh, things make so much more sense if you step outside of that materialist yeah. framework. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's refreshing when people admit to that. Uh, you know, I, I remember John Searle years back. I mean, that was his line. I mean, he's on the one hand, he's materialist. It's like, I don't understand. There's, there's no way to account for this scientifically. And yet I've got free will. If I want to raise my arm, whoop, there it goes. You know? <laughs> it's like that's, that was his... Yeah, right, his point. right. So, you know, but, right. but but he was willing to li- live with the tension. Sure, and I I, I think a, a materialist denial of free will, um, uh, which frankly most uh, virtually all materialists do deny it, um, is it's not simply scientifically wrong. That is, you know, there, there's there's a fair amount of scientific research that supports the the reality of free will, but um, in addition, um, the materialist denial I think is self refuting. Um, because if you have no free will, uh, then uh, it, 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 within the, the materialist framework, it means that your actions are entirely determined by, uh, by physics, by, by, by the chemistry and physics of, of the processes going on in your brain. But the chemistry and physics of processes going on in your brain are not propositions. They, they, they don't have truth value. So essentially, what's coming out of your mind when you express an opinion like free will isn't real is just some kind of secretion uh and why would anybody pay any attention to it so they're saying i'm i'm a meat robot so listen to me <laughs> i don't really want to listen to meat robots well you know, could also take the <laughs> you could take the view also well if you're right then i'm just going to believe that i do have free will because 
I'm determined to believe that I have free will. And so I'm just going to enjoy that. Right, 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 right. Who's to say what's right? Right. So it it, it just reduces to gibberish. Even better is uh, atheist Sam Harris, who uh, has neuroscience training, where he starts one of his lectures. Uh, Today, I'm going to convince you that you do not have free will. You know, it's like... <laughs> You know what? Like, what, like, what does, I'm, I'm, why should I'm, he care? What's the? What does this conviction mean that he's able to impart? Uh, you know, it's it, it's it's just the, there's there's so much irony there, and yet right, right. Well, and the 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 process of convincing someone by making an argument and getting them to agree with you implies the reality of free will. I mean, uh, you know, if, if basically what he's saying is I'm going to take you hostage and force you to believe in free will in some fashion, which is just bizarre. Um, yeah, it, it, it's, kind of a, it's kind of a pitiful scenario, actually, but it's, it, it, it has a lot of purchase in, in, our, in, in our culture today, unfortunately. Um, on, on the topic of information... Because I'm fascinated, I'm fascinated by the concept of energy. Uh, it just it, it, it just as a matter of physics, I think it's a very it, it's an intriguing concept. Uh, there was an article by David uh, Oderberg um, in the Aust- Aust- Australian or Australasian Journal of Philosophy uh, back uh, 2023. Is prime matter energy? And uh, Oderberg kind of went into this this idea that the Aristotelian concept of prime matter, that is a pure potency or pure contingency, is that energy. Uh, and he kind of gives a partially affirmative and partially negative answer to that. But it seems to me that inf- that information could be understood as kind of Aristotelian act and energy as, as, as Aristotelian potency. Uh, and um, so I, I find that I think that information may be as fundamental a concept in the natural world as energy is, and uh, they may be um, analogous to the to the hylomorphic ideas about uh, potency yeah. and act. Yeah, I, I mean that uh, sounds uh, you know I'm, I'm certain, certainly sympathetic to that. I have a, there's a book that I did almost ten years ago now. I guess it was ten years ago that I was writing it. Uh, called Being as Communion, uh, the Metaphysics of Information that came out in the Science and Religion series with Ashgate. But, uh, uh, you know, I take this idea of information and informational realism, which is in that article uh, that I wrote for our anthology, uh, and developed it further there. Uh, And, you know, so I have a chapter on energy, but I mean, the way I describe energy there is what's you know, what uh, I'm actually turned to right now, what causes information to undergo uh, such dynamic transformations. And information does change, it's, it's imparted, it causes things to, to happen. And so I say the usual word to answer this question is, is energy. So it's, uh, so it does seem that, you know, information as it is acting, uh, as it is taking things from potency to, to actuality, uh, you know, there's, there's energy, uh, you know, is it, uh, you know, I'm not sure you can just separate it from, you know, there's, you know, that the, there's this right. sharp dichotomy between energy and information. Uh, we gave the example of, uh, you know, striking a golf ball and, you know, trying to send it into, into a hole. 
you know, there's energy that's imparted, but there's information that's imparted. It's being sent here and not there. I mean, it's, uh, there's even teleology. It's being, you know, the aim is to send it into that whole. Uh, so they are, you know, I think they're intimately related notions. It's uh, energy that imparts information. Information requires energy. Uh, how do you get from, you know, we, we talk about constraint of contingency or narrowing of possibilities, that narrowing, that's that's a verb, you know, and what allows that narrowing to take place. And so uh, I think it's, it's reasonable to describe that in energy, uh, in energetic terms, uh, that uh, I think that it's going to be consistent with much of physics, but it's going to go beyond that, uh, because I think uh, lots of uh, information, uh, you know, just even if you think of information in our minds as we think new thoughts, as we create things, uh, you know, that's uh, that. I, I think that's not something you can necessarily uh, describe in physical terms. I mean, the the physicalists, the you know, mental, the the reductionists who want to reduce mind to matter, they're going to say that there has to be such a reduction, but. You know, I would say there's no evidence that when we think some great thought that there is necessarily any more energy or less energy in the, in the sense of physics uh, being imparted. And yet there may be quite a bit more information in the one than in the other. Um, you, you mentioned at the end of the design inference um, about conservation of information and, and, and mentioned that you hopefully would publish more on that. Right. Um, do you believe that information is conserved and, 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 and how is that? How, how does that work? Right. I mean, that's uh, the information that's being described by conservation of information. It's a, a bit narrower notion of uh, information. It comes up in search. So, uh, you know, if you think, uh, I mean, it's, it, it is still this notion of constraining contingency or narrowing possibilities. So you, uh, with search, you always have a target and there's a search space. And uh, the interesting searches tend to be needle in a haystack searches where you've, you've got a very small target and you're trying to find it. Uh, and so there's information that re that's required. That target, uh, often there's an inherent teleology there. Uh, and so how do you get to that, that target? Um, and you can do a Calculation. I mean, if you look at, uh, for instance, you can have some sort of measure of size of the target versus size of the space, and the smaller the target, the more information that's going to be imparted. And often you cash this out in probabilistic terms or, or do a logarithmic transformation, and so then you put it in terms of bits. But uh, the point is, though, uh, so when we're talking about conservation of information, I, I think it I better just give a brief example of what's what's at stake, and then then it'll become clear what what actually conservation of information means. So, let's say your your um, your target is an Easter egg, and you got this vast field. It is so big uh, that there's no way an exhaustive search or a random search will find that that Easter egg with any sort of reasonable probability. You know, so highly improbable. Uh, but then you're on the field and somebody shouts out to you as you're wandering around warmer, colder, warmer, warmer, hotter, hotter, you're burning up. And as they say, you're burning up, you look down, dig a little bit and there's that egg. Okay. So what happened? What allowed you to find that egg? Well, you were getting information being shouted out to you. 
But the, the question is, okay, well, where did the person who was shouting out that information get that information in turn? How did, how did that person know that, you know, that, that those were the right instructions as opposed to some other instructions? Uh, so in a sense, what you've substituted is just a, a random search for a search within a set of instructions, what you might call a search for the search. Originally, you were just on the field left to your own devices. You were doing a search trying to find that Easter egg. Now you've got those instructions that helped you to find it, but where did you get those instructions? Because you know every every instruction that says go right, go left, go right, go left could be also go left, go right, go, you know, and you, you can reverse the instructions. And so the, the, the instruction space is itself a search space. There are only gonna be certain instructions that take you to the egg and others that won't. And so what you've done is you've substituted for the original search, another search. Now it's a search in the instruction space. And it turns out when you do the mathematics of it, the search in the instruction space is always at least as difficult as the search on the original space. So that you never, you don't gain anything by saying, oh, I'm gonna just, I'm gonna find the right set of instructions and that's gonna get me to the egg. If anything, uh, typically those search spaces are exponentially larger, so you don't, it actually ends up being a more difficult search. And so conservation of information in this context means that the best you can do by going, in this case, to an instruction space is to have, have the problem not be any worse than your original problem. It may get worse. So that's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a conservation of information. It, it holds in this uh, search and search for search context. And it's, it's, it's deeply relevant to, to Darwinism. Uh, so, you know, I, I can just give you an example. Uh, over 20 years ago, I was on the campus of Stanford. Uh, I was being interviewed by Peter Robinson in his, on his program, Uncommon Knowledge. And Eugenie Scott was there. And the, that old trope about uh, monkeys typing Shakespeare randomly came up. And uh, uh, Eugenie Scott said, well, you know, within Darwinism, you shouldn't think of it as the monkeys randomly typing. What you need to think of it as the monkeys are typing, but there's a lab tech behind the monkeys with a vast vat of whiteout. And as soon as the monkey types a wrong character, he whites it out and then the monkey keeps going. And that's how you can get Shakespeare. Well, you know, notice how the problem has been shifted. Okay, so it's monkeys randomly typing. Now it's you have this error correcting lab tech who's, you know, on whom the burden of getting Shakespeare out. Right. But, you know, how did the lab tech know what to white out? Okay, and so it's this right. is what I kept finding. I mean, it's it's that, you know, the, the Darwinist says, oh, we got a, we got this this Darwinian search, which can really do a lot better than random search. But what makes the Darwinian search work, if it works, I think in many contexts it doesn't even work. But if it works, it's because it's been informed, it's been given information that allows it to work. And so what what I'm what conservation of information does really, it's an accounting principle that says, as you track the information, you find that. Uh, the information problem, in fact, is either staying constant, that's conservation, or it's getting worse. Now, this is exactly the opposite of what uh, Darwinian evolution would say. I mean, this is one of uh, Richard Dawkins' favorite lines, is that what makes evolution such a wonderful theory is how you get um, 
complexity from primordial simplicity. That's what he calls it. Uh, I mean, basically Darwinism uh, is looking for a free lunch. It's looking, how do you get you know, all this biological complexity from something that's much simpler that didn't have all that information and conservation of information says, no, if you've got information out, there had to be at least as much information in, uh, in at least in these evolutionary contexts. Uh, so that's conservation of information. I mentioned it briefly in the, uh, the epilogue of second edition of the design inference. We were actually going to include that in the second edition, but it was getting too unwieldy uh, and it deserves uh, full treatment of its own. So that's in a sequel book that's in the works. It's fascinating and, and certainly natural selection strikes me as an information rich process. Um, and uh, that, that it's, you know, there, there's a great deal of information imparted uh, during the process of natural selection uh, that the Darwinists simply can't, can't account for. The, um, there's an analogy, of course, between conservation of information and conservation of energy. Do you, is, is there anything analogous in information theory to the second law of thermodynamics, that is entropy? Yeah. Uh, does the world, um, so that, that, I, that, I think that's a very interesting question. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, certainly, I mean, the language of conservation is the same with the first law, although with the first law, it's, you know, there's this exact identity that's being held, whereas conservation of information, it's, uh, it's either equality or the information problem gets worth. So there's more information as required as you backtrack uh, causally. Uh, but I, I would say that uh, in terms of the second law, uh, conservation of information, I mean, I've, uh, I wrote a book 20 years ago called uh, No Free Lunch, Why Specified Complexity Cannot Be Purchased Without Intelligence. And there, at that time, there were a number of ideas and a number of ways of referring to things. And people were even talking about the fourth law of thermodynamics. But it was a, it, that at the time was an inverse law to, uh, uh, to the second law. And so I would say, uh, I mean, you know, one of the, the key thought experiments involving the second law is this uh, Maxwell demon, where you are, uh, a demon is opening and closing a shutter and allowing uh, fast or slow moving air molecules to move between chambers and then create uh, a difference in pressure. And moving the shutter takes virtually no energy. Uh, and it's interesting uh, when uh, Szilard, Leo Szilard, uh, introduced or, or wrote about that, uh, you know, he talked in terms of, you know, this is an intelligent intervention. So there's a sense in which information in this conservation of information sense can reverse, uh, you know, the, the sort of entropy because the natural state of these gas molecules will be to be diffused and, uh, and not to have that sort of differential, you know, uh, when you've got something cold in contact with something hot, uh, the thing that's hot gets colder and the thing that's cold gets hotter, you know, but, uh, but you know, it, it could be that the hot gets hotter and the cold gets colder if you can judiciously move the, the hot and the cold molecules. Uh, and, but that, you know, it seems requires information. Uh, a particular type of information and to reverse it. And so I, I think it's, you know, I would say uh, conservation of information, information is not an exact uh, opposite, uh, you know, or counterpart to the second law, but it's, but the, the notions, there's, there's some coherence there. Sure.
I, I almost get a sense, and this, this may just be uh, just fantasizing, but that when you look back at the history of thermodynamics, which I think is a fascinating thing to, to look at in the, you know, in, the, in the 19th century as it became clear that there was this, this thing called energy and that it, it, it was a fundamental uh, principle of the way the world worked, um, you almost get the sense that, that, that we're now in, in, in an analogous position with understanding inf information in nature. Uh, and um, uh, it's a fascinating science. Very interesting stuff. That would be nice if um, uh, if we if we are at some sort of tipping point with information, because I think it's 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 much more conducive to a non-materialist, even theistic worldview than uh, certainly uh, materialism. I mean, it's it's no no accident that somebody like Karl Marx wrote his dissertation. You know, he's pushed to this dialectical materialism, but his dissertation was. On Democritus and Epicurus, so I mean, two two great uh, materialist philosophers of the ancient world. So it's uh, there's a resonance, I think, with materialism and atheism. And on the other hand, an informational realism, uh, something that takes information as fundamental, it seems, uh, is is going to be much more open to a uh, spiritual, Platonic, theistic worldview. And it, metaphysics has very uh, profound real-world consequences, as you point out, with Marx and with Marx's materialism. Uh, and um, I, I certainly think we could do better with idealism. <laughs> I think uh, things haven't worked out so well with the uh, materialist way of looking at things. Well, I, I, I thank you very much, Bill. Thank you, Mike. This is Mike Egner from Mind Matters News. I've had the privilege of uh, speaking with Bill Dembski. Uh, Bill is... Um, the author of the second edition of The Design Inference, uh, and also uh, contributed a fascinating chapter in Minding the Brain, Models of Mind, Information, and Empirical Science uh, from the Discovery Institute Press. So I just want to thank Bill, and thank you all for listening. This has been Mind Matters News. Explore more at mindmatters.ai. That's mindmatters.ai. Mind Matters News is directed and edited by Austin Egbert. The opinions expressed on this program are solely those of the speakers. Mind Matters News is produced and copyrighted by the Walter Bradley Center for Natural and Artificial Intelligence at Discovery Institute.